0: I was shocked to learn how not queer friendly or queer accommodating um, the whole world of like assisted reproductive technologies, how they were how that wasn't more queer. Because I always knew like that's how, you know, two people with uteruses go about having a kid generally. I mean, there's a few different ways you can you can do it. But a lot of people, you know, take that medical route for, for lots of different reasons. So I just expected to be very familiar to everybody. And I might've been familiar to the people who worked there, you know, the doctors and the receptionists and stuff, but I wasn't familiar to their like computer program, (laughs) you know, the program that, that everyone, you know, everything is happening through these like computer systems. Right. And there's like no place for me. There's
1: no place for me in their paperwork. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Okay, where do you even start introducing Michelle T? She is a prolific writer of many books, including her memoir, Valencia, which was then turned into an experimental film. Her essay collection, which was her most recent book, Against Memoir, which won a PEN Award. She writes beautifully about queerness, class, addiction, feminism, sex work, so many other things. She's also a prolific spoken word performer with her queer feminist performance collective, Sister Spit. She's also the founder of Drag Queen Story Hour, which is now all over the country and the world. And she has a lifelong relationship with reading tarot and hosts the tarot podcast, Your Magic. Michelle and I got to talk about tarot, about queerness and about her new memoir, Knocking Myself Up, which is about her long and fascinating and occasionally complicated journey to becoming a parent. Here's Michelle T.
0: It was a very clear decision that had to be made, um, you know, and uh, about whether I was going to try to have a a child or not. And I didn't necessarily feel emotionally clear about it. I didn't necessarily know 100% if, if it was what I like wanted, or if it was like, what would be the best thing for me or my life. Um, but I did feel like, you know, there was, there was a decision just had, had to be made or else I would just sort of always be, it would always be a possibility that I never addressed. So there was something about like really walking up to this question and just taking a chance with it and deciding to jump over that threshold and be like, okay, let's see what happens if I try. For most of my adult life, my younger adult life, like the idea of having a, a child would be would was ridiculous to me. You know, I mean, I I kind of stopped dating people who could get me pregnant when I was around 21. But up to, you know, between the ages of like 18 and 21, I had a boyfriend. And so this idea that I could get pregnant was really terrifying. And it was always something to be very much avoided and make sure that, you know, we didn't have any scares and we never did, I never did. Um, and then that kind of you know, accidental possibility was removed for decades, really. Um, And, you know, I would talk about it sometimes, you know, I was in a long term relationship with a trans man. And we talked, uh, you know, if I was just like, what if we had a kid like he would be he was so ferociously against it. Like it got shut down really you know, he was a very dramatic and passionate person. So there wasn't ever, nothing was ever sort of like, yeah, you know, it was always like, no, or like, yes. So it just was his personality. So it was a big no. And, just, you know, it, it, I didn't feel certain enough about it to, you know, cause a reckoning with, within that relationship to be like, well, I want it. So do we go separate ways or what? Like I, I, I was like, I felt, I felt kind of okay letting him, his, his, big feelings be the deciding factor for me. It didn't feel 100% good because I knew that it wasn't really me making that choice. But I also felt so ambivalent that I was like, shrug, you know, probably would be ridiculous for me to have a kid. I mean, historically, I've always been really broke. I generally don't have health insurance. <laughs> I, you know, have a history of like alcoholism and drug addiction. Um, you know, I don't know. Like there's just, you know, and I'm queer and it's so hard to have a kid when you're queer. It's it's, it's It takes a lot more effort. Um, and I love my life. I love my freedom. I love traveling. There was always so many reasons, um, to not have a kid. And then, um, I was dating somebody, um, who and it was very casual and it wasn't for very long but I'm still friends with this person they're they're really great and I met they were almost in this teasing way just being like have a baby Why don't you have a baby like they weren't suggesting to having that they wanted to have a baby with me they were just being silly and they just like thought it would be funny and cute if I had a baby and of course I wasn't going to do it so it just was like this weird little joke but there was something in it there was like a truth in it that this person could see me having a baby and it was so um it was really enchanting to see myself through this person's eyes that they saw me as somebody who could, it wasn't a, it was, it was a cute joke. It wasn't a joke like, ha have a baby. Wouldn't that be ridiculous? It was just more, it was more like, why don't you have a baby? That would be so cute. And I was like, really? It would be. And, um, you know, my sister who's, uh, you know, the closest person in my life. Um, and like my best friend had, had recently had a baby and, um, I could, I could, she she could see me having a baby. And that was incredible because she knows me so well. And we're very different, you know, in all of the ways that I think, oh, it's probably bad for me to have a baby because of who I am. She's like the opposite. She's like, oh, you should definitely have a baby. She'd be the best mother ever. And she is. But like, because of all that, that she could see me sort of having a baby, um, was kind of amazing. And so, you know, it was in my mind, and I just sort sort of like was home one night and started Googling having a baby. <laughs> should I have a baby? can the computer tell me, can, can somebody else answer this question for me and solve this ambivalence? And, you know, I, I saw that I was old, I was 40. And, you know, I I saw all the evidence on the internet of like, what was happening to my eggs, you know, as the clock ticked. And I got really emotional that that all of a sudden realizing that it, I might have missed the boat, it might be too late. And I started crying. And that was like, a, I was like, Oh, wow, I, I do have a feeling about this because I'd been so ambivalent, you know. Um, I'm like, wow, I, at this, you know, you're having an emotion that's actually really meaningful. Um, and then I grab my tarot cards because that's what I always do whenever I'm on the threshold of, you know, having to pick a new path or make a big decision. And I pulled cards, and they were really good. They were really, really good cards for, for like, you know, what what does it look like if I walk in this direction? If I just start checking out, can I even have a baby? You know. And so then from that point. I just decided I was going
1: to do it. I'm so interested in the various tools that people turn to when they have, you know, threshold moments or moments of decision making that feel hard to them or just little moments where they want guidance. Mm -hmm. Um, How, and I know you've been reading tarot for a long, long time. Um, How has your, can you just tell me about your tarot practice in those moments for yourself when you practice it for yourself? Oh yeah, totally. Um when I
0: practice it for myself in those moments, I mean, it's really important to me like if I knew that I wanted to have, you know, try to get pregnant and, and and like I like that was like not a question. I absolutely knew that I wanted that. I wouldn't have picked cards on it just to see how it goes. Like I don't do that because things could go poorly. But if you know you're not going to change your path, then like I don't I don't want to know. <laughs> you know, it's like I'll I'll just take it as it comes. But if I'm not sure, um, what I want to do. And I, I need some clarity. Um, then I do, I do pull cards. I like pulling cards on like, what does it look like if I do this versus what does it look like if I do that? And I, if I remember correctly, I didn't pull uh, a contrasting, um, set of cards that day or that night. I, that night I only pulled cards. What does it look like if I go forward and try to have a baby? And I got great cards. I got like the high priestess. I got like the empress, they were so strong and positive and and so sort of geared t- exactly towards what i was asking that i wasn't going to pull cards about like you know what if i don't you know i was like no this is really great i'm going to just this is exactly this is exactly the kind of message from wherever tarot messages come from from my higher self from the universe who knows um this is what i i needed to to feel a little more certain in what feels really like a really new and shaky desire um, and so I do like pulling them for things like that. If I'm if I'm truly unsure on something, um, I'll pull cards on it and let that help me out. I mean, I love flipping coins. I'm a big coin flipper. <laughs> some some questions feel very like too yes or no um, or too petty to to trouble the tarot with. So I'll just flip a coin. I love flipping a coin because um, either it just makes the decision for you if you truly are ambivalent, or you know you could you could get, you know, can come out on heads, and then you get a little sinking feeling. And you're like, Oh, I actually do have a preference, you know, under underneath all of that, I do actually care. And then, of course, you don't have to obey the coin, you can do whatever you want. So I I do like, I like the coin, and I love the tarot. And
1: why do you think the tarot is, is for you, you have such you have this long term relationship with tarot? Why do you think it's for you? It's tarot and, and not, something else i i ask because i i know a lot of writers who are really into tarot and i and i am i just i have this like working theory that writers love it in particular because it's so much about like image and narrative and archetype but i'm curious to hear why why it feels like what your attraction to it has felt like over time i
0: mean i think you're right i think it is it is such an attractive tool for writers because um, it's a story, right? It's like every card tells a story, right? You can kind of uh, guess a little bit about what happened right before. You can guess where it's going. Um, and then when you link the cards together, it tells, a, it tells a totally unique story, unique to that particular reading. So yeah, I mean, if you traffic in story, the tarot is so good for you. And I love it that you know, you get a lot of bang for your buck with a tarot. You get like 78 cards, you know, 78 little pieces of art and that you get to work with. I started reading tarot when I was like 15 and um, I loved that it was this like ancient tool. I liked that it had this like the sort of mystery of history attached to it. Um, I liked that it was a really rich way for me to um sort of interface with the unknown, you know, with like Wherever these things come from, the future, the past, you know, I I loved all of the mysticism around it, and then I loved it it, it did actually, it was a real tool to actually help you um get some insight, you know, into e- either how you feel right at that moment. I mean, I think tarot is really looked at for like it's going to tell your future, you know, or something, and it can do that, but I think that the 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 strongest um thing that the tarot offers is just you know kind of what a great therapy session offers which is you know clarity and self-understanding uh, you know I, I, that's what i use it for the most um you know when when i pulled those cards on should i have a kid the positivity of it to me did suggest that my effort to have a kid would be successful that i actually would have a kid you know it did suggest that but really it was also saying like you really want this you know this is this is something that's like churning inside of you so you know, it did both in that, in that situation. But I really feel like the big gift that tarot brings is, is clarity and and personal insight. Um, you know, and if I lived in a different culture, I probably would have a different means of divination. You know, if I, you know, I, you know, there's uh, lots of cultures have divinations, there's, there's runes, there's the I Ching, you know, there's, um, throwing, um, throwing shells is like an African divination tradition or throwing bones. Um, but you know, I'm like, a white European mutt in America. And so tarot just seemed like my way. (laughs) And, um, and I'm so happy that it has had, that I've, I've watched it have such a huge Renaissance in recent time and that we can, you know, move away from the decks that we were just sort of stuck with for so many decades, which I love a lot of those decks and I have them and I work with them, but you know, they, the tarot needed an overhaul. It needed to become more representative of life today and not life in like medieval Europe. And so I'm really grateful for all of the, the tarot creators that have put, you know, their own spin on these archetypal images and made them more contemporary and and more easy for everybody to sort of relate to.
1: Yeah. So once you had pulled the high priestess and the empress and you'd had this really positive reading and you decided, and and it sort of affirmed the feelings you were already having about wanting to do this, um, I then you sort of set off on the journey of of having a kid which makes up this this beautiful book and one of the questions I had for you as I was reading was how you brought your queerness into this process which is not always a process that the, the systems <laughs> that you sort of enter through in the uh in the bringing the child into the world the, those systems don't always um make a lot of space for queerness um and, and I, I was excited and interested in the way that that, um, felt important to this story.
0: Oh yeah. It's totally important because I'm a queer person and I was, you know, creating, you know, uh, uh, you know, as, as the story, you know, evolved, it turned out I was creating, you know, at that moment, a queer family, but, but initially, you know, it was still going to be a queer family because I'm queer, you know, and my, my chosen family, the people around me are queer and even even my, you know, my family of origin, <clears throat> excuse me, even my family of origin is like super queer positive now because, um, you know, because of me, because they love me. And um, so I was shocked to learn how not queer friendly or queer accommodating um, the whole world of like assisted reproductive technologies, which is, you know, test tube babies, etc. I, I was shocked to learn how they were, how that wasn't more queer because I always knew like that's how... You know, two people with uteruses go about having a kid generally. I mean, there's a few different ways you can you can do it. But a lot of people, you know, take that medical route for for lots of different reasons. So I just expected to be very familiar to everybody. And I might have been familiar to the people who worked there, you know, the doctors and the receptionists and stuff. But I wasn't familiar to their like computer program. <laughs> you know, the program that that everyone, you know everything is happening through these like computer systems. Right. And there's like no place for me. There's no place for me in their paperwork. And that is so weird and alienating, you know, and it was definitely, you know, the, the sort of like harshness of that was a little mitigated by how kind everybody that I worked was working with was, um, the actual human beings. But I was also like, why didn't, why haven't you guys fixed this? Like, Does nobody complain? I mean, I don't think I was that. I mean, I complain a lot in the book. (laughs) I don't know how complaining I was in the moment because, um, for a lot of reasons, I mean, I felt out of my element. I was really nervous, you know, like I'm going into this environment that feels so intimidating to me for a variety of reasons because I'm queer, um, because i am historically you know a broke person and uh you know i don't don't necessarily have access to this level of healthcare historically and it feels like such a upper mi- middle class thing to do and there's just with so many and you know i just kind of identify as a dirtbag in general even though i might not always present like that that's kind of how i feel in my heart um so there were all these reasons why i felt a little intimidated certainly spending the money was terrifying and you know i know historically for myself when i'm perceiving an injustice, I, I'm i not cool-headed about it. I I feel like it feels like a flare-up. It feels like suddenly my insides are on fire and I have to say something about it. And I am generally not elegant um, or calm. I'm, I think I get really blurty and aggressive and scary. And I think that I also was just really knowing that about myself, didn't want to make didn't want to be seen as like this crazy person or this like problematic patient in this environment that I was reliant upon. So I don't think I made a big deal about it. But it just was, you know, the way that the way I ended up getting pregnant was that, you know, I was partnered at the time with someone 10 years younger than me, whose eggs who had ovaries and eggs, and their eggs were great, mine were not. So we decided, that, um, that we would use their eggs implanted in my uterus. And I, you know, this is a way that two people with uteruses get pregnant a lot. I mean, this is like, I'm not the first person to have done this. Um, but yet their paperwork had kept listing me as the surrogate and it was so gross and alienating and made me feel like, like a surrogate, you know, like I was like here, I don't know. Factual. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and nothing against surrogates, you know actual surrogates who are out there doing this incredible work to help people build family, like wow, you know, like that's just so wild that that folks undertake that that work and that journey, but you know i that wasn't my story, you know, I just was trying to have a baby with my partner at the time, and it was like it was it just really stank, you know, and then there was like a special um kind of psychological session that we had to have. I was going to ask you about this, the psych evaluation. Yeah, we had to have like a psych evaluation. And, you know, to his credit, our actual fertility doctor tried to get that waived um, because it was, you know, the reason, I don't know, because it was like put in there, I think for somebody who's being a surrogate, you know? Um, And yeah, and I, I can't speak to the necessity of of a psychological evaluation for somebody in that situation. Cause I don't know that situation, but I'm like, why do I have to, why do we have a, have a why do we have to have a psychological evaluation? Like people get pregnant all the time. Like <laughs> People like, you know, who, whose mental health are in all sorts of situations get pregnant. Come on, man. You know? And so I didn't like it at all. And, but again, I tried not to be hostile about it because I didn't want to, I didn't want to turn the situation into a big fight or a big problem. And I mean, I think that a lot of people who, you know, face marginalization in different aspects of their life, find themselves in these situations where you're like, how am I going to proceed? You know, am I going to fight right now? Or is it like, sometimes it's just not worth it. It's exhausting to you. It has, you know, um, the outcome is not guaranteed. You don't know if you'll, how you'll be received. You certainly don't know if you're going to make a difference. So I think that, you know, it's a kind of a pick your battles thing that at that point in my life I'm like in my 40s I think I'd had decided like you know when are you going to fight when are you not going to fight um, so I don't think I made that big of a d- I mean I was grumpy I think I just was probably passive aggressive <laughs> I was probably just like a grumpy passive aggressive like therapy in therapy <laughs>
1: Something I took away from this, this memoir is just how, just like how, how grueling IVF is on the body and on on your body, on your partner's body, um, and how, how, how hard the kind of ups and downs and tries that don't work out and, and it was It was something that I was thinking about as I was reading because you had sort of entered this process of after so many years of thinking, oh, well, I I could not do this and I really like my life and I, you know, things are, I don't feel so, so strongly about this. And then the process is so hard. And as you relate it, it never felt like you thought, I don't know that this is worth it or maybe I've changed my mind about wanting to do this. Um and i'm curious if it ever did feel that way
0: it's so strange it was like the opposite happened you know when i first set out to try to get pregnant i did i did really feel like i still i'm like i'm i still feel ambivalent but i'm just going to make a decision in spite of that ambivalence you know instead of letting the ambivalence make a decision to not do something and then you just feel kind of confused like did i even ever decide anything so so i jumped in and i was like if it works I'll have a baby, what a wonderful adventure I'll be on. And if it doesn't work, like I'm gonna just like go to Paris or something. Like life is life is large, the world is large. You know, I'm really fortunate that I get to be in it and explore it in the ways that I do. And so I'll just keep living my life and no big deal. But I, w- I didn't expect to become so increasingly invested in actually getting pregnant. But, you know, now looking back, that seems so silly. Like, of course you would, you know, like your, your body is literally on the line. Like you're, (laughs) you're investing, you know, with like, you're investing money, you're investing your body, you're investing your time, like those things matter. And it ends up adding up to feeling like, well, gosh, now I really want this, you know? And so I can imagine for folks who, who begin the process already, Feeling Like it's my destiny to be a parent and I want this more than anything in the world. Like it must, the, the, the IVF process must be incredibly, especially grueling on those folks because at least for part of it, you know, um, I was just sort of like, wow, look at this wild thing I'm doing and, you know, it'll, it'll work or it won't. And, you know, all good, you know? So I, I definitely worked my way up to being much more invested. Um, but I think that it must be so hard for folks, um, who who already start out wanting it so much because it is it's filled with so many ups and downs so many unknowns nothing's guaranteed i mean what's kind of intense is that the uh, like you know the the medical people will almost guarantee it to you you know like my doctor was like oh we'll get you pregnant like don't worry we'll we'll get you a baby like they were saying things like that but but i was saying like but at what cost you know like because I, you know, I, I was all in for that batch of eggs (laughs) that we had harvested from my partner at the time. You know, we had a finite amount of eggs available to us from this one egg harvest, which is so gross, such a weird phrase. Um, and I was really determined to see that through, but after that, I don't know, you know, I don't know that I would have signed up for another round of that. It's so expensive then it's like yeah maybe you know i know that i know that people stay in the you know the the ivf loop for quite a while before they actually you know give birth and i don't know that i would have been able to keep shelling out money and risking miscarriages and the ups and downs and yeah the toll on your body like i'm somebody with mental health issues i am medicated to help me with that and you know with the way that like you're you're messing with your hormones you can not I couldn't be on my normal medication and, and on my normal dosage like there was just so so much going on um that I don't know if it would have been good for me to continue you know inevitably I I don't know that it would have been good for me to continue on that path indefinitely like for me I think eventually I would have had to stop if it yeah. wasn't successful so I'm, I'm grateful that that we were successful with that first batch of eggs
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, you know, fortunately, fortunately that, that tough part of that, that sort of physically grueling part of the, of the story ends with this incredible kid. Um, I was, I wanted to know what, so my understanding is that you wrote this book, um, several, you know, that you started this book several years after the period in which the book takes place. Is that right? Um, yes and no. I had been blogging
0: during my attempts to get pregnant. I had a blog, um, on exojane.com and that site and, and the blog is gone now. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, and, you know, even when I was blogging, I, I was like, I really just want this to be a book. You know, I feel like I'm just taking notes for my future right now. And that's kind of what ended up happening, you know, is that I got to revisit, um, those writings and, you know, work them from, you know, work them from the tone of a blog into something or the shape of a blog into something that was more the shape of a book um, with, you know, with so much more information in it now, you know, writing from today, but still trying to keep that, you know, immediacy um, of being in the moment, which is one of my favorite ways to write classically and also one of my favorite types of, um, you know, personal narratives to read.
1: Yeah, that was something I wanted to ask you about because it is this book that has this clear forward motion promotion in plot through a period of time through this kind of portal that you that you cross through. Um but it sounds like I'm surmising that the period of writing it was like a reverse portal. I'm like having to get back get back to that place in time and at the at the end of the book you write a little bit about about that process, that things look, you know, obviously, what seven years later, things look different, and you're having to write backward through time.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was it was very it was very strange. Um, It was very strange because I I really started this project really in the throes of a divorce from the person who I'm spending much of the book falling in love with. So it was like it, that was a really challenging process. Um, you know, it's challenging. I don't want to say about it. I mean, you know, historically, I've written a lot about like breakups and heartbreak, and you know, it's so that conflict is so juicy, and that you know that sense of being wronged is such a is such a sort of simple place to write from. Um, And you know, writing about falling in love can just be kind of dopey. I feel like in comparison, and yet we need queer love stories, you know. And I really wanted to remain true to how I felt in that in the moment, you know, when when it seemed like all these things were sort of magically coming together in my life where like I'd made this decision to have a child on my own and then suddenly met somebody who also wanted that and was, and had the capacity for it. And it was, you know, and and filled in all of these gaps that you no, know, I wouldn't, I really would not have been able to have a child. I mean, I probably would have figured something out, right? I mean, there's multiverses, right? There's, there's, there's all these versions of Michelle who had, a baby, all kinds of wild ways, right? But in that moment, in that place in time, without me having met my partner at the time who stepped up, like, I don't know how I would have had a child, you know? And as as it turned out, you know, our love was not everlasting. And, you know, at the end of it all, I'm like, wow, we came together to have this kid, you know? So so how do I want to write about this? Like, I want to preserve the... I don't want to pretend like I wasn't in love. Um, I also don't want to, to... you know, let whatever sort of like negativity I'm feeling towards that person, that relationship, whatever. I don't want it to kind of poison the book. That's not what the book is about. Um, I also want to be honest. Like, I don't want to just like write this great love story and then, you know, for instance, have to go on a book tour to promote it and they have to tell everybody, oh, we broke up actually. You know, <laughs> like, I just want it in the book. I want all of it in the book. I like, I like big, messy stories. You know, it's fine that our relationship didn't work out. I mean, it was absolutely for the best for both of us, you know, regardless of how painful it might have been for me at the time. Um so, you know, I wanted to have all of that in there um as much as possible without with but really really letting the love story have its moment in the sun, letting it have its day, you know. And 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 not trying to kind of like in the afterwards where I'm talking about, oh, you know, it's actually we actually did break up. Like you know if people feel like a little sa- like a little sag in their soul when they read that, like I like that. I felt a sag in my soul when it was happening, you know like that's real that's life people people get you know divorced and it, it can be really painful um but I didn't also want to harp on it you know, I just wanted it to have its proper place at the end of the story,
1: yeah, that stuck out to me because you've written about you wrote in a against memoir you were Writing so beautifully about kind of the pitfalls of writing from a place of having been wronged or writing about past relationships that kind of freeze them in time um, in one way, rather than trying to let them let them breathe uh, through time. Uh, And I was wondering if this if this felt like. That put into praxis for you. That's such a
0: great question. I mean, I I, th- I think so. I mean, um, you know, it's I think that when you write a memoir, you inevitably are sort of freezing a moment in time. And I think that often if you try to trouble that a little bit, it it I think it's really tricky, you know, because you for me, if I'm reading someone's memoir, I I really want to just like be in that moment with them. I don't need their theirself today to kind of poke their nose in and go like, Oh, but you know, we made up or it wasn't that bad. Or don't be mad at my mom. They they did their best. You know, I just want to like, see what happened, feel the appropriate feelings, you know? So, so I feel okay with that. I think that what I think that what's really hard is that I think that as writers, we identify with our work so strongly, you know, and when we perform our work a lot, and I'm somebody that that's part of my creative practice is I, I don't just write memoirs. Like I, I, I started writing through spoken word. And that's always remained a part of what I do with my writing, right? I read from it a lot out loud. And so you're performing it and you're sort of like, I, 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 I. And it's like, you're, you're saying it again. Like it's like, you're claiming it and you're affirming it over and over again. And that's what I think can get kind of, you can get you and the present can get caught in that story. And I think that's what's weird. And I think that's what can be really problematic and stunting, you know, it's like letting that moment, letting the story be in the moment in honoring it for what it was and not you know letting yourself grow past it you know so and, and it's really you know and it's interesting it's like and I was you know during the the beginning of my divorce I was stuck in that moment I was kind of stuck back there in this sort of you know fantasy of in the story of like but we have you know we created this family and we are we are this thing and we made you know we made these agreements you know I was and, and you know, and that caused me a lot of pain. And that's, I think, what is so painful for anybody in a breakup or in a divorce. You're like, but I was over here and I was really identified with this story. And you just changed the story. And now I don't know what my story is, you know. And that's where Buddhism is really helpful, <laughs> I think. Because <laughs> Buddhism Buddhism's like, there was never a story. And there's not even a you. And you're like, okay, cool, cool. We're yeah, just-
1: that's that's yeah. like
0: pretty hard, though, given your
1: line of work.
0: It is really hard. Um, but again, I think that it is, it's, you know, there's layers of things happening for a human being writing a memoir, you know, like there's a writer, an artist writing a story, right? And then there is like a, an, an ego, you know, that, that may or may not be identifying with the story and relating to the story, you know? Um, and then there might be like, you know, a subconscious that's trying to like, Get revenge through the story. (laughs) Like there's a lot going on, so I just think as conscious as you can be as you're writing. You know, I I don't think that the I don't think the solution is to like write from the present moment and to give everyone their due and like you know, and then I, I think it just sort of waters down the drama. And we are going. We go to literature, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. We go for a, a bit of drama. We go for a really good story. Good stories tend to have conflict. They tend to have they tend to have ups and ups and downs, and so you want to be honest about that. But I think that for your own mental health, you know, it's good to like not overly identify with the things that have happened to you. I mean, I think that you have to, for a moment, to be able to process them. But I think that you know, I think we all know what happens if you keep. Heavily identifying with the things that have happened to you, you know, deep into your life, I think it. I think it it creates like a psyche that gets that's really stuck, you know. And so, it is a little challenging, I think, to be a memoirist and not get stuck. It's so funny because people, I think, think that like, oh, you know, you write memoir and it's cathartic and you've worked through it, and it's like, no, actually, the. I think that the bigger, you know, the bigger likelihood or the risk, the thing to be alert for is that you don't work through it, but you actually set it in stone, you know. And, you know, I, I can look back on that, the relationship that I had, you know, with that, with the person that is, is my co-parent now. And I can see, I can see the ways that I like maybe, you know, made things in our relationship really rosy at the time. Um, But I don't want to go in and insert that into the story because it takes you out of the story. Like just be in the rosy story and let it be a rosy story. You know, I think the risk to me as a human is to, you know, after it's over to be so attached to be like, but it was such a rosy story. It was such a rosy story. You know, then, you know, you have to just stop and be like, okay, well, you know, either it was and it's over now or like, was it so rosy? Like, what about these other things? You know, what about the way that it was complicated?
1: That makes me want to ask you about how you decide or when you decide to retire stories from performance. Do you do that consciously?
0: Well, because I just keep writing and a lot of times when I am reading it is to promote something. It kind of is almost self-selecting, you know, like um I I think that um you know, I definitely had this real revelatory moment where I had and this was many years ago where I'd been asked to be in a show that had a theme of jealousy and I just didn't have the time to write something new, so I thought I would read um a piece from Valencia about, you know, the t- this time that you know, the, the person I was in love with fell in love with somebody else. And, um, and so as I was reading it, I was sort of setting it up in this way. You know, I wrote a lot of Valencia in real time. And so, you know, when I originally wrote that chapter about jealousy, I was in that jealousy, you know, and, and I was performing my life a little bit. I was like, you know, in my twenties or whatever. And I was just like, I would be like, Oh, this is about this bitch. That's still my girlfriend, you know, like whatever, just like being a dummy. But, um, but it was years later and I wasn't, I wasn't interested in that person anymore. In fact, I was in a whole new relationship and I was still getting up and reading, you know, it was like my, inst- my, my, it was my impulse to get up on stage and introduce that part of the book in the same way I ha- I had been for like, you know, 10 years or something and be like, this is about this bitch that stole my girlfriend. And that woman was in the audience and she just was like, you know, she was so long suffering, uh, she was so used to me ra- reading about her in public she too is a writer and i think maybe that gave her a little bit of you know sympathy for me or something but you know when i found out she was there i felt so embarrassed cuz i was like oh my god like that was so rude of me and i don't even feel like that anymore like here i am acting it's fine that i wrote honestly about it in the moment it's even fine for me to read read from it today you know because it it is it does contain like a kernel of truth you know in in that Amber of Time it's real but I can't act like I'm not traveling back in time to read it I'm reading it from today you know and she's not that bitch who stole my girlfriend she's like another writer in my community who I have some history with that like we're both really over so you know that was that was really eye opening I mean I had another situation which is um you know I wrote all of this poetry that's how I started writing this like very personal poetry in the early 90s and then in like the 2000s um they got all of these chapbooks that i had published independently got published in a collection called the beautiful and i was really happy about it i was really you know happy that all of that work um you know made it into like a you know properly bound book that a publisher invested their time and money into putting out into the world and all that work was together in one place but i hadn't really foreseen having to read from it that was really hard because that it almost felt like juvenilia a little bit you know and in my eye the eye who is writing those poems is so opinionated and so self righteous and so certain that you know they know everything th- that they know and that everything they know is the truth and it's what makes those poems kind of great and in any way they might be great that's what kind of does it I think is that tone but it was really like it was really a strange experience to you know be in a place. I mean, I think I was also like newly sober, you know, when when that book came out and so I was questioning everything and and so much of what I thought I had known about myself and about the world seemed really flimsy and so to suddenly have to get up and pro, you know, make these proclamations and read you know, what's essentially kind of slam type poetry felt really strange, <laughs> really really. And it was hard to not give a big disclaimer, but I I wanted the work to be able to stand on its own, but I also wanted to be like I'm just reading this poem, I'm not this poem
1: anymore you know because for a moment i really was the poem i love that i'm just reading this poem i'm not this poem anymore it's such <laughs> a good way to to talk about that feeling yeah yeah is there any part of you that feels that about any piece of this book yet mm, uh,
0: <laughs> thank you for saying yet because who knows what will happen in the future right yeah um, yeah you know no i i think that um you know. Because I just, you know, I I was working with source material, but I also was like, you know, writing and editing it from the present me, and I um, I I felt, you know, pretty much like I I can stand by, you know, all all of the ways that I was processing what was going on feel, feel like true and appropriate to to the me in that moment. You know, like I did feel the way that I felt. You know, I did think the thoughts that I thought. I did feel the love that I felt. You know, and express the love that I felt. Um. So yeah, it, it all it all remains true. I mean, I think like, how is it different? Well, you know, I I have really different feelings towards the person that I was involved with romantically. Um, so that's really different. And I definitely like, you know, I as much as I wanted to preserve that love story, I also like I dialed it way down because <laughs> usually, you know, if I and when I, I I like to be really like lush and extravagant, you know, if I'm writing about romance and stuff it's like very fun for me to write about but i i definitely was like oh i'm not gonna like get lost in like praising this person because i do i do have really different feelings about them and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna bring that animosity into the story but also neither am i going to like like give them the gift of my of my praise (laughs) you know for for all time in a book I mean I did. I did give them the gift of my praise for all time in a book. You're welcome. But um, you know, I I, I also dialed it back a little bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, that seems fair. That seems measured. And again, I so again. too. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I was you you're know, you're I did I did want to be fair about it. I mean, I, you know, I in no way wanted it to be a revenge book for so many reasons. That's not that's not the point of this book. You know, it doesn't look me it doesn't make me look good to, you know, be writing a, a big revenge novel. Um I still have to have almost daily interaction with this person, and will for the rest of my life because we have a child together. And I'm so grateful that they came into my life and allowed me to have this child. You know, I wouldn't change a thing. Um, But but yeah, so there's there's a lot of reasons to, to remain measured.
1: What are your hopes for what this book might do in the world do you think about that I mean it's
0: it's hard to and it's hard not to right I mean it's it's not my first book so I don't have any illusions about like it's gonna be a New York Times bestseller you know like I've written a lot of books and I know I kind of know what happened with I mean anything can happen with the book right I also know that that obviously lots of people have New York Times bestsellers like that's a thing um but I also like I I try to just also remain very measured about, about a book, you know, I think that, um, it goes out into the world and it's my job to sort of serve it and be of service to it. That's how, how I feel about it. Um, I want it to reach as many people as possible. My hope is that it will meet, um, it, it will, it will fall into the hands of people beyond its obvious demographic. You know, I think that I know this about my writing. I know that it is you know, entertaining and interesting beyond just like people who are considering having a child or not. You know it's like you know, even just doing the book on tape, I was like in a recording studio in Highland Park with just a bunch of dudes, and they were like, "I love this book. you know like this this book is so rad, and then they're like, "Oh, yeah, the editor just wanted us to tell you that like you really loved this book, you know, it's like these are just like single dudes, you know, um so you know, I, I hope that it finds a varied audience and a varied readership. Um I always hope that about my work um. You know, if it's helpful to anyone who was who was in somewhat of my situation, either they're queer and they're navigating the strange world of you know IVF, or they have a uterus and they're wondering if they should put it to work or not before time runs out. You know, if it gives sort of inspiration or comfort or anything to those folks, that's wonderful. But you know, I really just want it to have a big, strong, vibrant life in the world. Um, and you know, I I hope I hope people like it and. But, you know, I always think we, I wrote I wrote my book for the people who like
1: it. I didn't write it for the ones who don't like it. <laughs> Thresholds is produced by Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Osherwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to Justin Alvarez and our hosts at Lit Hub Radio. You can find out more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website. This is thresholds.com. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe, or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you normally listen, and subscribe and review us there. Thanks. We'll see you next week.